0: Welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, which is made possible by you, our patrons, on Patreon. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. We're always looking for ways to thank you, our patrons, for your generosity in making all our shows on StarQuest possible. And this is one of those ways. We reached out to you and asked if you had questions you'd like to ask, and we got many great responses. And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So let's get right to our first question, which comes from Thomas Salerno, who asks, Hey there, Jimmy. At the time of this post, Jurassic World Dominion is in theaters, and that got me wondering about so-called de-extinction. That is, bringing extinct species back to life using genetic technology. While cloning dinosaurs may be beyond our abilities at present, I've seen multiple reports and books about scientists working to resurrect species from the last ice age, like woolly mammoths and woolly rhinos, etc. What are the ethical and moral implications from a Catholic perspective of using such techniques to reintroduce extinct life forms to the modern world? Would the church have anything to say about it? Well, um,
1: it uh, there aren't any church documents that I'm aware of that address it, but we can certainly apply the principles of moral theology to the to the case and get an estimate of you know what what should be done. In principle, manipulating animal life in this way is okay because animals are not humans, and so um, they're part of they're within our power as a result of us having the image of God and being. Given care of the world by God. So, if we chose to bring back a species that used to exist here on Earth, that would be legitimate in principle. There would be some moral principles that also should be employed if we were to do that, though. One of them is we don't want to cause needless animal suffering. And so, we'd want to do it in the most humane way possible. We also wouldn't want it to cause human suffering. And for example, you wouldn't want to, let's say you're North Korea and you have a tiny economy and you want to bring back an extinct North Korean animal just to glorify the state. Well, if that you spend so much money on that because of your tiny economy that you cause your own citizens to starve, well, then that would be immoral. So we don't want the process of bringing them back to cause unnecessary human suffering. But in a rich country, where the people are 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 not starving because of this government program, um, it could be legitimate to have even, you know, government or private funding for this. Uh, also, when you're introducing a new species, you don't want it to be an invasive one. You don't want it to get out in the environment and get out of control and cause environmental problems. So you'd want to watch out for that. And you'd also want to take if it's a dangerous species, one that can harm humans, you're going to want to take adequate safety precautions, which is what Jurassic Park is all about and how they continually fail to take adequate safety precautions. Um, incidentally, there is a current effort uh, to bring back the Tasmanian tiger that we've talked about in previous episodes. It's also known as the Tasmanian wolf or the drop bear. I'm so- not the drop bear. We mentioned it in our drop bears episode. It's also known in addition to Tasmanian wolf and Tasmanian tiger as a thylacine. And um, and it's a marsupial animal that kind of looks like a wolf. Hence the wolf name. And it's got stripes on its hindquarters. Hence the tiger name. But uh, there it, it it went extinct only in like the 19 in the 20th century, I think the 1930s. Um, there was one in captivity. You can even watch video of thylacines and um, somebody like left it out in the cold and it got sick and died. Um, there are reports that thylacines still exist uh, out in the wild. So that there, there are reports of it as a cryptid and we'll be talking about that in in future episodes, but um, there's also an effort to de-extinct it. So we'll have a link to where you can read about that.
0: Excellent. Our next question comes from Rob Leonardi. He asks, hey, Jimmy, I'm curious on how you were able to get from a neophyte to senior Catholic apologist.
1: Well, um, so the title senior apologist at Catholic Answers kind of gets used in two ways. Uh, in one sense, I'm the senior apologist apologist at Catholic Answers because I'm the longest serving. Uh, in fact, I'm the longest serving employee at Catholic Answers. I've, I'm have i in my 30th year now. And um, so I'll have my 30th anniversary as an employee next June 1st. And that means I've served longer than any of the other employees and any of the other apologists. The term also is used, though, in in a slightly broader sense to include uh, these days, to include both me and Tim Staples. And there it's basically used to distinguish um, the longer serving apologists like me and Tim from the newer apologists. Um, In terms of how I built the skills for this, that's something, you know, I continue to build my skills, but the basics of how um, how I proceeded in my career is something I actually wrote an article about And we'll have a link to that article so you can read about um, how I did it and the advice that I would give uh, um, um, beginning apologists.
0: The next question comes from Andrea Martignoni, who asks, I know you've discussed AI in the past, but I thought the recent interview with Google's Lambda and the discussion about sentience would give a new spin on it. Do you think any AI, whether it contains a biological component or not, could be considered alive? How about sentient? What even is sentience, since there really isn't a test? Well, if uh, if an AI
1: has a biological component, then part of the AI hardware or system is alive, because the biological component presumably would be alive unless it's a necrobot. Um, which we've talked about on other shows. Uh, necrobots are robots made out of dead tissue. Um, but the if 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 it's just like an AI that uh, that is plugged into your brain, like a Brain Pal from John Scalzi's novels, well, the AI itself is not alive, um, but your brain is obviously alive. In terms of sentience and what that is, people often misuse the term sentience. Sentire um, is Latin for feeling or sensation. And so technically anything that feels is sentient. Um, and, you know, even, you know, planarian worms will um, will be attracted by some things and, and avoid other things. So they clearly feel and they're living, and so even, even very simple life forms are sentient. What people frequently use sentient to mean is something more like sapient. Um, sapient means wise, and so a, an, a creature that has human-level intelligence is a sapient creature. Um, I don't think because they're not alive that AIs could ever be sentient. I don't think they could ever feel things. Um, They might be programmed to act as if they feel things. They might be programmed to act and say, I'm feeling bad today or I'm feeling good today. But that's just their programming. That's not how they really feel. Data is a toaster. Um, In terms of Uh, Of wisdom, well, not exactly human wisdom, but at least intelligence, I think it is possible one day, not soon, but one day, I think it's possible that we could have AIs that are that have more calculating ability and more general intelligence than humans. And they're the very dangerous ones. So we need to watch out for that. Also, um, I had a uh recent interview on Catholic answer's focus with Cy Kellett about artificial and google's lambda a i that one of its developers claimed was was intelligent um and it's a hilarious interview um surprisingly um but uh there's there's a considerable amount of hilarity involved in that in in recent a i stories and so we'll have a link to that and also Uh, depending on when you're hearing this, we'll either be releasing this as a bonus episode into the Mysterious World theme, or we will have already released it as a bonus episode into the Mysterious World uh, feed. Hmm.
0: All right. Our next question comes from Tobias Brozjak. I hope I said that right, Tobias. So he says, what do you think about the phenomenon of deja vu, which is the feeling that one has lived through the present situation before? Do you? do you think it's just a weird quirk of our memory, or could it be an actual natural psychic power like remote viewing? I ask this because I experience deja vu quite a lot, but I am never able to recall when exactly I have seen this situation before, which I gather is common with deja vu. So I dismiss it as nothing more than a memory bug. That said, there's a person in my family who claims to have moments of precognition about coming events. I suspect it to be deja vu too. Whenever it's deja whether it's deja vu or not, that person claims that these events are preordained, for example, by God, and during those events, they have no free will to act in a different way. This bothers me because the idea that God takes away our free will for a moment doesn't seem to be in accordance with the church's teaching, and it can lead to disturbing conclusions. For example, that person says they've seen that they will be married to their current spouse before they were even dating, and they would be married no matter what, as this future couldn't be changed. But wouldn't it mean they're not married at all since to be married, you have to do it of your own free will and that person thinks they couldn't have done otherwise? So let's deal with the free will issue first. Um, The church teaches
1: that we do have free will. This person's position, if they're claiming that God sometimes overrides our free will, that's possible. Um, That's not contrary to church teaching because Church teaching says we do have free will, but not that we have it all the time. And there are natural things that you can do that deprive a person of free will, like, you know, giving them, you know, uh, getting them drunk or giving them drugs or something will cause them to lose their faculty of of, uh, free discernment, free moral discernment. And so even we can deprive people of free will temporarily or permanently. If you gave someone a brain injury you know, that permanently deprived them of their faculties. Um, But uh, you're right that if any decisions we make during a period when we lack free will, we are not responsible for. And getting married is a decision that has to be undertaken freely. Uh, Forced marriages, meaning marriages where you don't have the free exercise of the will, um, are not valid. And so there would be a a, um, a problem there. Um, also though, I would say, you know, this person is sort of, a uh, that you're, that, you know, is sort of a semi-Calvinist in that they think some things are, are faded in a way that we don't have free will. But of course, that doesn't mean that they're themselves not exercising free will. I mean, Calvinists exercise free will all the time. They just don't believe they have it. Um, now, in terms of deja vu, I do, uh, my suspicion is that deja vu is probably more than one thing. Um, I don't think there's likely a single explanation for it. One explanation would be a kind of wetware quirk where, um, you know, your brain actually processes sensory information, not all at the same time. When the sensory information comes in, it divides it up and sends it to different modules in the brain different areas of the brain for processing and then it re once they once they process it it reintegrates it all together and the different parts of your ba- brain process some information earlier than other bits of information get processed and so like for example you are, are the color recognition faculty in our brains recognizes what colors we're seeing before the faculty that recognizes people tells us what person we're seeing. And, and, but then we, those things get integrated with an image of the person and we, and we consciously experience it as a single recognition, but things in the brain can go weird. And so I can imagine, and this has been proposed that sometimes deja vu is, um, produced by the feeling that I've seen this before is produced by a timing error in the brain where some information gets delivered early and the consciousness then when other information arrives, it's like, wait, this is familiar. Um, So that could be one of the things that's producing deja vu. Another thing that can produce it is cryptomnesia. Cryptos is Greek for hidden. And um, so cryptomnesia is where you have a memory, but it's hidden from you. You can't remember when you learned this. And actually, we have cryptomnesia on a widespread basis for a lot of things. I mean, I speak the English language well, and I have no idea when I learned most words. You know, uh, I know the meaning of the word apple, but i have no idea when i learned the meaning of the word apple i was assume, i would assume that it was when i was 2 or 3 or something but even words that i know i learned in adulthood um like um anti-disestablishmentarianism uh, i have no idea when i learned that word i mean it was i, I was certainly past the limit of childhood amnesia for when I would have learned that and I still don't remember when I learned it. So there are a lot of things that we learned that we don't remember the circumstances in which we learned it and so I I think cryptomnesia is another uh explanation for why deja vu seems familiar. It's because we have seen something like the current situation we're encountering before, we just don't remember when that happened, but we still have that feeling because of the uh, hidden memory. Another thing that could be responsible for, pre- for, uh, for deja vu is precognition, where you've, in the past, you viewed the situation in the future, and now you're encountering it, and so it feels familiar. Um, but you have cryptomnesia about the fact that you precognized it. You don't remember the initial perception of what would happen in the future. Yet another thing that could cause it is the reverse of that, retrocognition, where I walk into a situation, let's say it's in a particular room of a building, and a person is there. Instead of viewing the future, I could view the past and see a situation where this person was in this room in this building before. And I'm not fully conscious of the retrocognition that's going on, but I am... Um, I am perceiving the past, and that's what's causing the the feeling of familiarity. We'll also have a link to an article on Deja Vu on Wikipedia so that you can read some of the proposed explanations there, but because it's Wikipedia, it's going to totally dismiss um, any paranormal possibilities and focus ex- exclusively on natural ones
0: ryan asks i assume most parishes stopped giving out the precious blood at communion due to covid ours has not resumed yet and i'll bet there are still many in the same situation i know the precious blood cannot be served in individual cups unless they're all made or made or coated with precious metal which presents logistical difficulties if it were possible to use the process of regular or reverse spherification from molecular gastronomy to create wine balls with gel membranes large and strong enough to be picked up by hand, would it then be licit by canon law to use these for the Eucharist so as to distribute the precious blood individually by hand rather than everyone sharing a single goblet?
1: So we've got to distinguish between what the law says and how the law would be interpreted and applied in terms of what the law says, um, there is not a prohibition on taking spherified wine and putting uh, the the gel caps of it or whatever you want to call them, the wine balls, into a chalice and then consecrating them and then having a minister of Holy Communion give these to people. That's not prohibited. Um, And so... Um, The law, as it's written, would not prevent that based on anything I am aware of. Uh, I am aware that you could not use this for the main chalice. Uh, The priest's own chalice, he's got to pour water in that to mix it with the wine, and you can't do that if the wine is spherified. Also, you can't pre-pour the water and then spherify the wine, because that would take place before Mass begins, and he needs to add water to wine in the main chalice as part of the ritual of the mass. But he doesn't do that for any auxiliary chalices that are being used. And so hypothetically, you could have spherified wine in those chalices, um, the way the law is written. But that's different than how would the law be interpreted and applied. And it's arguable that this is a please don't eat the daisies situation where the legislator simply never envisioned that you would eat the daisies at the table party. And so they never thought to tell you not to do it. Um, So I could imagine the Vatican saying, whoa, no, no spherified wine. Um, That's not what we mean when we talk about putting wine in chalices and consecrating it. Uh, so I could imagine a ruling coming from the congregation for the, dis- or the dicastery for the discipline of the sacraments saying, "Nix" on this, it's not allowed. What would then happen if we have a permanent presence in a microgravity environment with Catholics there? Like, well, let's say we've got a space station and it doesn't have rotational gravity. What would happen with spherified wine there? They might get an exception to use it or something. But um, But that's a general that's the that's what I can tell you.
0: Okay, so our next question comes from Jeffrey Wills, who asks, I grew up hearing stories and anecdotes about the church being harsh with left handedness and there being various teachings about it being associated with the demonic. The stories often came from older generations and was posed as a superstition that was bled off in time but i 've never encountered any documentation of these sorts of teachings or beliefs within the church. Did these teachings exist? Were they just common beliefs projected on church teaching from the lowest levels, or were there more valid church teachings at the heart of it
1: i 'm not aware of any church teachings meaning teaching documents that um, the church has released that say anything bad about left handedness um, i I know that because of the culture you know in in Ancient Rome, left handedness was regarded as as a undesirable thing and as a kind of sinister thing. In fact, that's where we get the word sinister. It's from left handed. It's from the term for the left hand. Um, But uh, but that was a cultural matter. And so I'm sure that there have been there's been anti left hand prejudice on the part of many Catholics, just like many non Catholics through history, just because it's part of the surrounding culture. I'm not aware of any church teachings that deal with that, though, and certainly any such teachings that may have existed at one time have long since lapsed. Um, We will have a link to a brief Q&A on left-handedness that deals with this a little bit as well.
0: Okay, Luca Comey asks Hello, Jimmy. I'm a fan of science fiction and I've read most of Asimov's books. What is your opinion of its psychohistory? Basically, do you believe that it would be possible to predict human behavior at a very large scale, not individually, if we treated it almost as a study of gases, where although the behavior of the individual gas molecule is impossible to predict, it's possible to assume that large amounts of gases will always follow certain general laws? I'm on the fence, but I must admit that I have observed similar and predictable patterns in small gatherings that made me think that it may be a possibility. Well, I think that it it is
1: possible to a degree to predict large-scale future movements. So to give a a simple example, um, the United States has uh, what's known as a first-past-the-post electoral system. So the person who gets either the majority or the plurality of the votes wins. Um, What we don't have is the kind of uh, democracy that you have in some countries where each party gets a number of representatives that are equal to the proportion of the vote that they got. So like in some countries, um, if 49% of the people vote for party A, then um, then 49% of the representatives get to belong to party A. On the other hand, here in the United States, if 49% of the people vote for the candidate from party A, and 51% of the people vote for candidate for the candidate from party B, then the candidate from party B wins. And if everybody voted, if 49% of everybody voted for party A, and 51% of everybody voted for party B, party B would get all of the seats, and party A would get none of the seats. And that first-past-the-post um, procedure means that it strongly favors a two-party system because you need to build alliances. Getting past that 50% mark is, at least all things being equal, that's crucial. And the easiest way to get 50% or more is if you're part of a big alliance. And that means that U.S. history has been dominated by two parties. Now, what those parties are have changed over time. We no longer, for example, have the Whig Party, um, but uh, we, we do have a political system that favors, um, that favors there being two dominant parties. And as long as we have the current voting system, that's going to be the case. Well, so what then happens when you have a genuine democracy, and as long as it continues to be a genuine democracy, what happens if you're the losing party? Well, you're probably going to work harder and try to fix things and craft policies and make speeches that will appeal to um, to more voters so you can get past that threshold. And if you do that, then your opponent party is going to do the same thing. And so one of the things that U.S. voting is structured for is having a regular interchange between parties. And we see this, especially at the presidential level. Um, now, these days, we have term limits that say no individual can off, can be a president, for, can be elected president more than twice. But if voters wanted, they could continue indefinitely to elect a president of the same party. And that doesn't happen. You tend to you tend to have the Democrats in power for a period, then you have the Republicans for a period and it goes back and forth. And that's because the two parties are genuinely competing with each other. And our voting system makes it likely that that's just going to continue to happen. So if you're, let's say, in the second or third term of Republican administration in Washington, you can probably predict you can't predict what each individual voter is going to do in the next election. But you can estimate, you know. We've had the Republicans in office for quite a while. We're probably going to get a Democrat next time and vice versa. If it's a long period of Democrat rule, you can guess it's going to be a Republican who gets elected next time. Um, Now, this principle has been applied on larger scales and people apply it to more kinds of things. Um, Over a decade ago, I read a book by George Friedman called The Next 100 Years, a forecast for the 21st century which tried to look not at every little thing that's going to happen, but try to predict what's going to happen over the next hundred years based on general trends that have been playing out. A um, a more recent book uh, by an individual um, named uh, Peter Zion is called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And so we'll have links to both of those books, the one from a decade ago by George Friedman, And also Peter Zion's brand new book, which I have not read, called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And, uh, you know, some of the things in when you read future prognostications like this can be a little scary. So we'll also have a link to a video called U.S. Enemies Are Not Gonna Like This Video. And what it does is it shows you rather some rather surprising advantages that the United States has compared to some of our competitor nations like China and Russia and so forth. So uh, that can be a little bit reassuring.
0: All right. Uh, Paula Welker uh, asks, hello, what are our current best thoughts on who wrote the first books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible? Also, do we have any thoughts or traditions around Enoch? He walked with God and then he was not because God took him. So in terms
1: of the of who wrote the the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, um the the historical majority view is that it was Moses, um, except for little bits like where Moses dies, people would say somebody else wrote that. But the historical view has been Moses. However, the the books never actually claim to be written by Moses. Um they're they don't use the first person, they don't say Moses wrote this in the third person about entire books. They will say Moses said this and have a quote from Moses, but they don't say Moses wrote the book. And um beginning a couple of centuries ago, there was a lot of questioning about uh who wrote the books. Um and that led to a development known as the documentary hypothesis that says that the Pentateuch is essentially an edited together version of four documents known as JED and P. J, or the J source, as it's also called, is um, uses the name Yahweh a lot, and so it's known as the Yahwist source. And you spell Yahweh with a J in German, and so this is the J source is the Yahwist source. The the next source, the E source. Uses the word L a lot for God, and L is the Hebrew word for God. It's not a name; it's 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 a noun, and um, so the source that uses L is called the Elohist source. Then the Book of Deuteronomy was thought to be largely written by a single individual, and so it's called the Deuteronomistic source. And then there's some additional passages in the Pentateuch that seem to reflect the priestly views that you would find at the temple. And so people refer to this as the priestly source. Well, JEDP was very common in 20th century scholarship, but it started to fall on hard times. And uh, these days, there is no single consensus about who wrote the Pentateuch. Um, you will have some individuals who are very traditional that will say Moses wrote it. You will have other people who will say it's these anonymous sources, J-E-D-P. You'll have some who will accept like the J source and the P source, but not the E source. So there are variations there. Um, My personal view is that it was likely written around 1000 B.C., which is between when Moses would have written it. He would have written it around 1200 B.C., Or and it's it's between that and when um, the um, uh, the JEDP sources are thought to have originated. So I think it's it's kind of in the middle. I think it's around 1000 B.C. at the time of King David and King Solomon. And so I would suppose it was written uh, or edited together from earlier sources by a, a court historian at this point in time during the reigns of David or Solomon.
0: OK, and then our next oh, question, sorry,
1: oh. uh, Enochian Enoch. literature. Yeah. Oh, right. So there is extensive extra biblical Enochian literature. Um, the most famous book is called First Enoch. It's It was written, parts of it certainly were written a century or two before Christ. Some of it may have been written in the first century. Uh, there are also two later works known as Second Enoch and Third Enoch. That were written during the Christian period and Enoch shows up in Jewish folklore and other places. So there's actually quite a lot of Enochian literature. And um, um, if you want to check that out, a good starting point would be the book of first Enoch. Okay,
0: Tim Lucchesi asks, Jimmy, if you were elected president of the United States, (laughs) what are the first three mysteries that you would ask to see if they had secret files on?
1: It's tricky. Um, There are so many mysteries. I'd love to know whatever the government knows about them. But if there were three, ones that occur to me off the top of my head, obviously UFO UAPs. You know, I'd like to know what we know about that. I also know that there were psychic spy and actually have been psychic, even subsequently, according to some of the evidence, there are psychic spying programs that we've had other than Stargate. And so I'd like to learn about these other psychic spying programs that haven't been fully declassified. And then if I'm president, I'm probably concerned with presidential assassination. So I'd like to see the files they have on those, like (laughs) what really happened to uh, to Lincoln and to JFK and to the others who were assassinated, because not all of those files are declassified at this point.
0: Mm. Uh, I think. I remember uh, President Obama saying something about he... Yes. Asked for files on UAPs and mm-hmm. didn't get any or something along Clinton, those lines. Clinton, Clinton said things like that. I oh, OK, Clinton. Yeah. Clinton. Yeah. yeah. OK. Uh, all right. Our next question comes from Rob Leonardi, who says, uh, what was the understanding of indulgences giving specific time off of purgatory, i.e. saying so and so prayer gets you 50 years off purgatory? And what changed to make the Catholic Church stop promoting indulgences in that way? Was this a change in Catholic Church teaching? it wasn't a change in
1: church teaching it was a change in church discipline um so the story on what the uh the days and years that used to be attached to to indulgences is explained in an article on indulgences in the catholic encyclopedia which we'll have a link to and it explained it this way it said a partial indulgence commutes only a certain portion of the penalty and this portion is determined in accordance with the penitential discipline of the early church. To say that an indulgence of so many days or years is granted means that it cancels an amount of purgatorial punishment equivalent to what would have been remitted in the sight of God by the performance of so many days or years of ancient canonical penance. Here, evidently, the author of the article says the, reckon- the reckoning makes no claim to absolute exactness; it has only relative value. So, to give an example, there one of the um, back in the day in the early church, they had um, they had books called penitentials that said if a person has done this, then they need to do penance for this much time, and then after they've done that penance. You can readmit them to the church, and they can receive communion and so forth while they were doing their penance, they were still supposed to go to church, but they would they wouldn't get to sit with everybody else and they wouldn't get to take communion um They would like sit with people who are not yet Christians or something like that and and they wouldn't go up at communion time um so for example, let's say you had an abortion, and one of the penalties that i know was used in in some circles in the early church was 10 years of penance for having consciously having an abortion after you become christian um and so uh so for 10 years you would be expected to stay with the people who at at mass who are not um who are not fully christian or who are otherwise doing penance like you are And then after the 10 years, you'd be formally reconciled with the church, and then you could take communion again. Um, Now, that's all changed. We don't do the sacrament of penance that way anymore. And now you get absolved immediately before you even do your penance, and the penances are much milder. Um, But the idea with the purgatorial days was, okay, if you have an indulgence that is for 10 years, what that means is that you will get not 10 years, not out of purgatory 10 years earlier, but you'll get a remission of what you've got to deal with in purgatory that's equivalent to what 10 years of penance would have been on earth in the early church. Now, that's the concept. It was very confusing for people, and, and it seemed kind of Arbitrary in some ways. Why would this get this many days and this would get more? And so in the 1960s, there was a revision of the church's uh, uh, governing documents um, on indulgences. And in 1967, Paul VI released a document called Indulgentarium Doctrina, which was a teaching document on the doctrine of indulgences as it's understood today we'll have a link to it, by the way, Uh, but it also contained new norms for the administration of indulgences. And norm number four said this, a partial indulgence. So this is the kind that used to have days and years attached. A partial indulgence will henceforth be designated only with the words partial indulgence without any determination of days or years. So that abrogated the old days and years assignments. So what do they represent now? That's expressed in norm number five. In norm number five says, the faithful who at least with a contrite heart perform an action to which a partial indulgence has a, is attached, obtain, so here's what they get, in addition to the remission of temporal punishment acquired by the action itself, an equal remission of punishment through the intervention of the church. So the way partial indulgences work now, you do some good action because you want to signify that you repent of your sins and you want to please God, and God looks on your action and and uh, says, okay, you you've been learning your lesson. You won't have some consequences that you would otherwise have because you know you you you're learning your lesson. You deserve to be rewarded for that. So. You won't experience as much of the consequences as you otherwise would have. And the church intervenes with the power of the keys in in a partial indulgence to give you an equal proportion to that. So now, if you take any partial indulgence, whether it's big or small, and you really take it to heart, then you will get that same amount of intervention by the church. On the other hand, if you take a partial indulgence and you just kind of, eh, to do this indulgence, but I'm not really trying to learn my lesson, then you get a kind of eh, intervention from the church as well.
0: When I was a kid, uh, we had a big, the big Ben family Bible had a list of indulgences as days and years in it. And I remember uh, obsessively going through it at times, trying to work off. Days, months, and years of purgatory. <laughs> so,
1: and <laughs> and that was something, you know, that the church didn't want people being scrupulous about. And, yeah. And because that's one of the things that, it, I mean, they, they it, the the motive of assigning the days and years was a good motive, <laughs> trying to give people an encouragement to grow closer to God, but It also ended up being confusing, especially after people were no longer familiar with the penitential system of the early church. And in some individuals, it could encourage a kind of scrupulosity. So in the 60s, they said, let's just cut through all that.
0: Yeah, yeah. OK, the next question calls from, comes from Paul Binner, who asks, any thoughts on the Aramaic or Hebrew word Jesus used in the Lord's Prayer, which was translated into the Greek word Epiousion. The word is mysterious enough to do something on, but I'm recently even more fascinated by what actual word Jesus spoke and in what language. OK, so this is something that
1: um, if, if you study Greek, you'll be aware of the in the Lord's Prayer, we have the line about give us this day our daily bread. And in in, in in that's how it's translated in English. But there's actually a big dispute about how should we render this? Because in Greek, the word that gets translated daily is epiousion, or epiousios, to give the dictionary form. And we're not sure what this word means, because it appears it was coined by the writers of the Gospels. Um, it It is not a, Greek, a word that appears in prior Greek literature. And we have early Christian writers commenting on this, like Origen from the early 200s saying, yeah, nobody uses this word. I mean, educated Greeks don't use this word and common Greeks don't use this word. This seems to have been made up by the evangelists. And so um, so that's led to a whole bunch of... A scholarly discussion about what is what does this mean, and daily is a possible meaning for it. It can mean other things as well. In terms of Paul's question, what would Jesus have said in Aramaic or Hebrew, we do have an insight on that. Jerome, so the church father, St. Jerome, read an Aramaic gospel called the Gospel of the Nazarenes. And because this was an Aramaic gospel, it was written in the you know original language that uh, Jesus and his disciples would have spoken. And that's no guarantee that it's historically accurate. but the lord the the Lord's prayer would have been passed down in Aramaic in the aramaic Jewish speaking Christian community. And so even though the Gospel of the Nazarenes is later work, Whenever they used it, whoever wrote it would have used the Aramaic version of the Lord's Prayer that was traditional in their community. And so, even though it's not certain, the Aramaic that Jerome reports for this word has a good chance of being true. It's not certain, but there's a good chance that the word Jerome saw in the Lord's Prayer in this Aramaic Gospel was the original Aramaic word and that word was mahar mahar means tomorrow and so the uh, and this is also one of the suggested translations for Epiusion. but the the overall sense of the petition in the lord's prayer thus would be give us today our bread for tomorrow so we're asking god to help us have enough food that will we're going day to day but we're hoping to get today what we're going to need for tomorrow
0: Okay. Uh, Our next question comes from G Ray. Hey, Jimmy, ever since the Kenneth Arnold episode, I've disregarded stories about flying saucers since they were a misreport by news reporters. Ever since, it's made me wonder, is there anything about a saucer-shaped craft that is significant for space travel or even terrestrial air travel? Thanks.
1: Well, um, outer space is, is almost a pure vacuum, and so there's not any particular shape that um will make it easier to fly through space than another shape um it's really that that more becomes a concern when you're in an atmosphere um and I have been aware of um, people designing airplanes who have thought that there could be an advantage to having a circular what's known as a circular wing. Um, there are you know, a typical aircraft has kind of a middle section, and then it's got wings that stick out of the middle section. There's another kind known as a flying wing aircraft, where the whole aircraft is like one big wing, and they tend to have like boomerang shapes or triangular shapes um, for the overall aircraft. But then there have been people who have proposed there could be a benefit to having a circular wing, which would essentially be a flying saucer shaped aircraft. Um thus far, these craft, I mean, they've prototyped them, but thus far, they haven't had a lot of success with them. A famous example is one known as the Avrocar, um, which uh, has inspired various UFO legends, but the Avrocar is just a human-made circular wing aircraft. Uh, we'll have a link to an article on circular wing aircraft so you can read more about all that.
0: Carolyn Stem asks, I've been wondering for a while about when the year 1 AD would have been placed and people would have started counting the years. Okay, so the uh,
1: the guy who made the calculation was a monk who was in Rome. His name was Dionysius Exiguus, which you could translate as Dennis the Short, also possibly Dennis the Young. But uh, but he was a he, he apparently was not Impressive in his physical stature or age, uh, he did a calculation trying to determine because uh, every year you know you have um, like holy days like Easter and stuff, and you need to calculate these in various ways, and you need to have chronological tables and stuff. And he was working on that, and um, the the Roman system was based on the reign of the emperor Domitian, who persecuted Christians, and. Um, he didn't like that so he said let's ditch this persecuting roman emperor calculations and base it on our real lord jesus christ and so he tried to calculate when jesus would have been born and his calculation which he did uh, this is around the year of 525 ad so this is this is into the into the 6th christian century but he compiled historical records and Put, put all the data together and concluded that Jesus would have been born in 1 BC. Now, there is no year zero on this, on this timeline because they didn't have the number zero yet in the West. So, we jump from 1 before Christ to AD 1, or the first year of our Lord. And so the idea based on the December 25th traditional date for Jesus's birth is that Jesus was born at the end of 1 BC and then 1 AD is his first year of life or the year of our Lord one. And there is no zero year because nobody has a zeroth year of life. It's either before our birth or it's a year of our life. There is no zero. And so that's the story of how we got the current epoch. To use its technical term, this way of reckoning years is known as an epoch, um, and that's uh, that's how we got it. It was Dennis the Short in five twenty-five.
0: All right, Charlene asks: The Bible tells us of different times that Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. Are there any other writings or pious beliefs that tell us what else Jesus did after his resurrection and before he ascended into heaven? Did he stay with the Blessed Mother? Appear to other people throughout the world? Thanks so much. I especially enjoy your discussions about religious topics. <clears throat> Thank you so
1: much, Charlene. Um, the This is a subject that lots of Christians have been curious about. Christians always want to know more about what did Jesus do in this period of of his life that we really don't know much about. And so they've, um, starting in the early church, they started writing books to try to fill in those details. So we have, for example, the Infancy Gospel of James, also known as the Proto-Evangelium of James, and the Infancy Gospel of Thomas to tell us about the events that led up to Jesus' birth and more about his life as a child. We have the same thing at the end of his life, and there are a variety of early documents that record things that Jesus allegedly did during the 40 days before he ascended back to heaven. One of these documents is known as the Gospel of Mary, in which after the resurrection, but before the ascension, Jesus has an extended conversation with a woman named Mary. Unfortunately, the text is fragmentary, so it, it's not 100% clear which Mary we're talking about, but it's probably Mary Magdalene. Um, the difficulty with this literature is that it all was written in the second, third, fourth, fifth, and later centuries, so it, 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 it's not historically reliable. Even worse, a lot of it's written by Gnostics. The Gnostics were a group of heretics who had a a blending of Christian beliefs with non Christian beliefs, and they would put it on the lips of Jesus and say, Yeah, this is what Jesus secretly taught during that 40 days. And so you really got to be careful with this stuff. It has historical value for scholars, but it doesn't really make for great devotional reading.
0: Okay, Joe Truzos asks, Jimmy's episode on praying for people in history got me wondering about the efficacy of prayer. Specifically, there's lots of people in history or living today that no one prays for, but many people will pray for popular people. I know God loves everyone the same, whether someone is praying for them or not. It makes me wonder if praying has more to do with the person praying than it does the one we're praying for. I'm curious what Jimmy might think about that
1: well you're right, God has compassion on everybody, and he um He loves everybody uh, and it you're also right. prayer is for us, it is not for God. God, as Jesus points out, knows what you need before you even ask, so the whole purpose of prayer is not to tell God information it's to help us remember God and relate to God and think about God and love god um, and that's all and it's really the um the reason behind prayer is twofold. I mean, one, so what are the two great commandments? Love of God and love of neighbor. Well, by God saying, I'll, I'll, I'll reward you with certain things if you ask, and thus that's that's praying, God encourages us to think about him and to recognize him as the source of the good things we have so that we learn to love God. So prayer promotes love of God. Also, God has determined to reward people when they pray for each other, and so that encourages us to ask our neighbors for prayer and to pray for our neighbors, and that encourages the love of man. And so prayer is not something we would need if we perfectly loved God and perfectly loved our neighbor, Um It's something that God has chosen to reward in order to help us fulfill the two great commandments. Um, But it does have an effect. Uh, You know, if uh, James says in his letter that to some people, at least you have not because you ask not, you know, people were not praying when they needed to for some things. And as a result, God didn't give them those things because he wants to encourage them to pray in the same way. if If something is uh, a blessing that God has determined he will give if a certain group of people collectively pray and they don't, then the blessing will not be given. But God loves everybody. And so everybody who dies in God's friendship is going to go to heaven, whether someone prays for him or not. And also the church prays for everybody it prays for the whole of humanity so the church's own liturgy involves prayer for humanity and many individual people do as well i i i've mentioned the so-called cosmic prayer that i do where i i pray for everybody in all times and worlds and so there are people praying for you no matter who you are or when you are
0: rob leonardi asks when jesus walked on water was it more like a conveyor belt or more like a trampoline Would Jesus have gotten wet from sea spray or would he have been completely hydrophobic?
1: We really don't know uh, because we're not given the details. We're told that he walked on the water, but we're not really told about uh, what the dynamics of that were like. And so artists and filmmakers have envisioned it a bunch of different ways. I would suspect, I mean, we can only speculate here, but I would suspect that in terms of would his clothing have been completely hydrophobic? Probably not. Um, that would be a second miracle that is not mentioned in the text. So God, when he does miracles, he tends to insert them into history and then let natural law take over. Um, you know, when when uh, when wine turns into the precious blood of Christ, it doesn't start floating, you know, gravity holds it in place. Um so, I would suspect, you know, given, the, um, given what the waves were doing, that he would have gotten his clothing wet. But exactly what it was like for his feet, um, I don't know that I'd say either really conveyor belt or trampoline. Um, because a trampoline, I mean, it might be like a trampoline. A trampoline is a kind of springy surface that you can walk on, um, but it may have been like a solidification which not like a conveyor belt which is a solid thing that pulls you forward i i because it says he walked i assume it wasn't pulling him forward although they do have those um those um uh, conveyor belts in airports that you can walk on but um i would suspect it was it might have been like a trampoline it might have been like a flat surface the thing that i wonder about is how violent was the um was the motion of the waves at this time? Because if it's violent enough, I it could be really hard to walk on. So I'm I'm not I'm not sure. But all we're told is that he did walk on it.
0: Tim Lucchesi says I just finished Bob Breyer's course on ancient Egypt, and you weren't kidding. It's phenomenal. I wrote Doctor Breyer to tell him about Mysterious World. Are there any other in the Great Courses series that you'd recommend? Well, Bob Breyer is an
1: extraordinary. He's an extraordinarily gifted teacher. And so uh, his, in terms of delivery, is the best delivery I've ever heard on on the teaching courses. He does have a couple of additional courses. He's got one on the great pharaohs, which is, um, I think it may actually just be selected episodes from his overall 48-part course. And he has another one, I believe, on hieroglyphs um but you might want to check those out and see if you'd be interested in those in terms of other instructors there's a Jewish scholar named Gary Rendsberg uh and he has a couple of courses that I would recommend one of them is on Genesis he has a very good course on Genesis in which incidentally he he takes down the JEDP hypothesis um he points out that actually Genesis has a very tightly integrated literary structure it is not a composite of of these other sources, not in the way that's claimed. So um, so he has a really good critique of that. Also, he has a course on the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is fascinating. And you learn um, astonishing things about the community that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like, if you were a member of their group, you could not poop on the Sabbath. So, wow, no pooping on the Sabbath. <laughs> I wonder how <laughs> what they ate on friday <laughs> Thursday um, to make that happen. Um, but it's a it's a very interesting course. Uh, one there's also a pair of courses um, on the history of science. The first one is history of Science Antiquity to 1700 and the second is history of science 1700 to 1900. And they're both good. I especially love the Antiquity to 1700s course. I will, if I'm laying in bed in the middle of the night and, and you know, because I tend to sometimes have biphasic sleep, I need an audiobook to listen to. And I'll tell Alexa to put on History of Science um, Antiquity to 1700 if I can't think of anything else. It's fascinating. Um, the, um, the instructor for it has a robust grasp of the compatibility of religion and science and how religious individuals drove the, um, the study of uh, science or natural philosophy, as it was called at the time, for centuries. And so it's a very religion-friendly course, and it's very informative, and it's just fascinating to learn about the scientific ideas that uh, people had in that period in history. Uh, One other course I'll recommend is called Ancient Astronomy, and uh, I recommend it. It's fascinating, but I also have to give a caution. Um, The instructor has an episode on, and, you know, frequently I'll catch instructors in these courses making minor mistakes, but the instructor um, has an episode on the Star of Bethlehem, and he is completely wrong. Um, he's advocating a theory that was uh, produced by an astronomer named Michael Molnar. It is a common theory, and it's completely wrong. So with the exception of that episode, um, I would recommend it as a very interesting series to take.
0: If I could offer one as well, just uh, yeah. I, I really enjoyed John McWhorter's On Languages. Oh,
1: yeah, John McWhorter is great. I, yeah. he's, he's really good as an instructor.
0: Yeah, he's fantastic. So that's it from us. Thank you to all our patrons and especially those who submitted questions. You can submit feedback by going to patreon.com slash starquest or by visiting sqpn.com, the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com Send a tweet to at mys underscore world. You can join the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash Discord or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at patreon.com slash StarQuest and eventually at sqpn.com when we release this episode to all listeners until next time jimmy aiken thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world thanks dom and once again i'm dom bettinelli thank you for listening to and supporting jimmy aiken's mysterious world on starquest